Today, I am here at、um, a hotel close to the airport. That's why you hear planes flying by with Marie Trout, the wife and manager of Walter Trout, mother of three kids, who I presume you also manage maybe because they're playing, right? <laughs> I can manage my husband, but my kids, as above and beyond, not go. <laughs> but they, they actually play music, do they, they not? They do, they do. Okay,、and、so. They have strong ideas and opinions and are making their own way and their own mark. Yeah. And also, you're an author and you're a doctor.、Mm. So,、um, you, we chatted about a year ago when you had, you were almost finished the book,、um, the title, Witch. I can't recall right now. The, the blues, why it still hurts so good. Right.、Um, and you were just on the finishing touches of that book, which came out February, I believe. Yes.、Um, I want to I talk about that book and, and many other things, but I want to ask you a few things about your life、mm-hmm. because I find something very interesting about your life.、Um, so let's start with growing up in Aarhus, Denmark, and tell me what that experience was like. Well, I was、um, born to an interesting little family. My dad was 31 years older than my mother. She was 25. He was 56 when I was born. And I was an only child growing up in this、uh, town in Denmark. It's a college town, beautiful place.、Um, but very quickly we moved to the northwest coast, which is closer to my mom's family. And so I grew up there in a very small town. Uh, sort of right between the fjord and the、um, west, the, the North Sea. What did your dad or what did your parents do? My dad was,、uh, he worked for the government check, for the、um, Department of Weights and Measures, checking that gas stations delivered the right amount of gas. My mom was a teacher. Okay. And,、um, so that's your interest in education? Yes. My mom also, from I was very little, before I could speak, she taught me how to sing. Uh, she believed that we really internalized language through sound and through music. And if you could learn how to sing, you could learn how to speak, and you could learn how to spell, and you could learn how to count. So she was very focused on music. Her family was very musical.、Uh, everybody played the violin.、Um, I, I played the violin from I was eight till I was 18, classically trained. Wow. So we would have you know, quartets in the house. Everybody would sit around and. And have their violin out and play little Haydn or Mozart、uh, quartets. And、uh, it was always very, very steeped in music. Music meant love to me. Music was a way of connecting beyond words. We didn't have to use our, our you know, everyday life、right. voices, but we could find this other connection. See, I find that we just had this conversation yesterday about. Communicating with music and, and what, what, what I, when I was playing in a band a long time ago and I never got good at that point, I never got to a point where I, I could communicate. And, and in doing interviews with musicians, often they talk about the language of music and, and the ability to communicate with one another on stage. And I understand the concept. But it's not something I understand personally because it's not something I never got to be good enough to be able to you know, play off of one another and build and whatever. So that's, that's interesting. One of the interesting things that came out of my research is that really you don't have to play yourself to get the experience. You can watch it happen on、mm-hmm. stage, you can tap into it, and you can have a similar kind of experience 
from the audience, uh, particularly with certain kinds of music, and I right. think blues is very good at that. And so there's that potential. You don't need to go there yourself and be trained. You can tap in. You can look at another audience member, and they might have tears in their eyes. And all of a sudden, you feel something because that brings something out in you. And the music is a facilitator of that kind of, of connection. The fact that your dad was that much older, I presume, was not something you were very aware of when you were growing up. But how did it, how did it affect you? It, it, it affected me greatly because he had been through um, the Great Depression. Um, he had been without work in Copenhagen. He had experienced World War II and the bombings and the scarcity. And so he had a very um, old-fashioned mindset of... No, you can't throw that sheet out, even though it has holes in it. You know, right. no, you can't throw that sock out. You got to mend it. Um, everything was um, very frugal and very careful. Mm, so he was very affected by that. And in a sense, I grew up being a little old-fashioned in my way of seeing the world. And so you embraced that as opposed to pushed it away. When I was older, I pushed it away, okay. it, and it we, we got. We had some tension when I was a teenager because... Who doesn't? Right. But I think more so in our family because we literally had three generations between the three of us. Right. So it was, um, you know, it was tough for my mom to be in the middle too, you know. Um, And I I think I connected also with my grandparents. I really uh, understood this older generation in a way that my peers didn't. And the, the, the dreadful... Um, time it was for somebody to grow up in Europe during World War II or during the Great Depression. Right. I mean, both of those things were were really, really, they made such a deep mark. You could say these people really knew the blues. There wasn't food. There wasn't work. Uh, there was fear every day, mm-hmm. uncertainty every day. Uh, Denmark was um, taken over by Germany. Um, so, Many people lost their housing because Germans came in and said, hey, you need to move out. We're taking over this area, and so we have some barracks over here for you. So it was, there was a lot of fear, and I think, in a sense, some of that fear got implanted in me and how I saw the world. And it, it made me very alert to <laughs> suffering, in a sense. I, I could really see it in a way that my peers didn't. They, they would kind of go about their lives and, you know, what are you talking about? There's nothing to worry about. But I had a sense of worry always that was part of it. Of How much me. do you think that has to do with being an only child? It, it could certainly have something to do with that. I mean, I had to rely very much on my parents, but we also had wonderful times. We would go on vacations together, and, and you know, we would drive around England and Scotland and go out and, and see things. Um, so, but there was a sense of loneliness, certainly, that came from being an only child, and that was it. So yeah. other than the music that you played, the classical music that you played, what was your exposure to other kinds of music when you were growing up? Um, so classical music was sort of the go-to, and the we went to concerts, and everybody loved it. But there was a secret love of jazz. My dad loved Louis Armstrong, and he would put on It's a Wonderful World, and he would just become transformed. I could see it. Um, but then the radio would come off, or, and it was a little bit like, uh, 
my mom had, during her college years, been very, um, you know, she had let loose a little bit once in a while to a Danish band called Papa Boo, but also Chris Barber's okay. um, band. Um, and whenever there was jazz that would come on that reminded her of that, again, I could see her transform. She would lift out of that, you know, cloud of, oh, I got to get ready for tomorrow for school, and I, I got to do this, and I have to do this, and the laundry hasn't been done. But something lifted when she would listen to jazz. And uh, so more than classical music, which was more the bond in our family, jazz and this music coming from America did something to my parents that I could observe. And they were a little, I don't want to say ashamed about it, but they didn't really know what to do about that, you know. <laughs> and this would be through the radio? Yeah, or, or we had little vinyls. Okay. You know. And then what kind of music did you listen to? Was it mainly through them that you heard? Like, was it mainly jazz, or did you have your own kind of music that you listened to? <laughs> Um, well, I found the Beatles, the Doors, Janis Joplin uh, fairly early on, and uh, would I loved listening to that music. That was wild and free and completely different than anything I had ever mm, encountered. It, it was almost a hurricane, you know. The first time I heard a live rock band, I remember being so shocked at the volume and, and the intensity of it. And, and then once I got into it and I saw how others reacted and they moved physically and I, I experienced that, it was like, oh my goodness gracious, where has this been all my life? I mean, just a, a visceral connection to something that did much more than the other kinds of music that I had encountered previously. Right. He was music that went to a place that I couldn't even explain. It's interesting. So then you decided to go to university for education, or go get your BA under for education, and then at the same time, you worked in a um, music club, or kind of managed the music club, also did some PR work for bands, and also managed or owned a PR firm. It, it was an advertising firm? sales company. So it almost seems like like what you do right now, it just seems like all the th components that you kind of needed was, it started back then. And even what, what you talk about when you talk about the music and how you grew up with classical music and, and seeing your parents and how they reacted to music also seems to be connected to you writing this book. You're so right. It's very perceptive of you because it, it really, I, I always joke to Walter that it was as if I was trained and educated to be in this place with him. Um, and I, of course, couldn't know that, uh, you know, how, how all those pieces would come together in loving a blues musician and managing his career and, and sort of steering him through, but also really being his partner in talking about what music might work better, you know, and what, what might be um, a good sound um, and how to put things together. Certainly from the business end, I handle all that. But it's, it's and then there's a bunch of psychology um, that goes into right. Which you um, also that studied. Work. Yes. So, so there's a, a unique mix of my own background, my educational background, and my interests and passions that have really been allowed to be expressed in what I do with my life with Walter. 
it, it's an amazing gift, really. But is it is it a case where everything just kind of came together and that you look back and go, oh, okay, well, this is meant to be? Or was there a plan back then that said, you know, I want to I want to learn marketing, I want I want to work with music, I want to see the club side of things and understand the business of music. It was interest driven. Um, I wanted to learn marketing because I knew that I wanted to work for myself. And if you can't market whatever it is you do, you are not going to be successful. And that was something important to me. I was uh, always an independent person. I didn't do well if I had to go into corporate structures or go into even a school structure and and be a part of that. I, I, I was a little bit... Um, I wanted to sort of have this trajectory that I could set for myself. Now, then I found that in advertising sales, so selling advertising space in 12 different newspapers and magazines that I had, and that was not filling me up. It was giving me a lot of great experiences, but yes, now I had my independence. Yes, I was doing what I thought I wanted to do, but my heart and my soul was not content. I was not fulfilled doing that work. Um, and then Walter popped along and, and came into my life. Can, we, can you quickly give me the, the synopsis of how that happened? I was <laughs> so working really hard, came home one weekend, was going to just sit down, not do a thing um, all weekend. And my roommate came in and said, Hey, you know that that band you've been talking about you want to see? They're playing in Hostepol, which was about 70, 80 miles from where I was. You want to go see them tonight? And everything in me was just screaming, absolutely no. I'm staying here. I'm not moving from this perch. I'm going to watch the tube and eat popcorn and have my feet up. And then I just heard my voice say, sure, I'll go. (laughs) So... I guess now I had to go because I couldn't really say, oh, wait a minute, I didn't mean that. It was a really strange experience. It led me to Hostable where he played that night. Um, I saw him on stage, was absolutely blown away. All fatigue went out the window. And um, he sort of halfway through the show, to make a long story shorter, our eyes met and it was this intense light that was around us. And it was literally like the, the, the audience parted like the Red, the, like the red Sea. Uh, and, and I moved forward, and he kept signaling to me, like, I want to meet you. I want to talk with you. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and there was so much people starting to look at me, and I was like, I don't know what this is. And after the show, I tried to get backstage. There was a big security guy. No, but, but, but Walter said he wanted to talk to me. He said, well, hasn't said that to me. You're not coming back here. And um, so I thought, oh, okay. Well, that was a fun experience. Started walking back out through the hall, and Walter had waited in the wings, sort of anticipating that. So he jumped out on the stage and said, hey, we have to talk. And uh, we did. And within 45 minutes, and I'm not making this up, he declared that we were going to, that I was going to move away from Denmark, leave all my friends and family, um, Come be with him. We were going to get married, have children, and grow old together. It wasn't a proposal. It was just a matter-of-fact statement. Like, this is happening. Okay, so before he said that, 
in the 44 minutes prior to this, are you feeling something that says, yeah, I, I could see a future with him? Or are you thinking, here's another smooth-talking musician who's going to go away and I'll never see him again? There was a, a, a direct sort of a conflict between my, my heart and my brain. My brain was telling me, this is just smooth talk. Don't, and that's sort of what I was responding with. Right. Don't, come on, man, this is crazy. This is not how things work, you know. But inside, there was certainly a stirring of curiosity and of, um, I, I remember thinking I've never felt like this before. And it felt like just in our conversations, like we were, like, it was like hand in glove. It was just such an amazing fit. I'd never met somebody like that who was so um, kind and warm and um, really almost read my mind. I mean, it was, it was, it was a little strange. It, it, yeah. it was strange. I mean, you hear about these things. Mm. And, and, you know, you hear about successful marriages that went on for, you know, 50 years or whatever, and they just met, and within an hour, they declared love for each other. And you think, how does that happen? Like, it's, it's, a, it's mysterious. It, it is. It's, it's a strange. huge risk. And then for you, you, you're living in Denmark, and you're happy living there, and all of a sudden, hey, change your life, come to America. Yeah, but How, I mean, also, I mean, as I said, the advertising sales, it yeah, was yeah. clear that wasn't really filling me up. I had this, you know, I mean, it took me 10 days to agree to his crazy proposition. What were say, those 10 okay. days like? Um, he called me all the time, um, and we talked a lot, and he was very straight with me. He said, listen, I might be a big deal in Denmark, but come to America and you'll see the reality of my life. I'm, I'm playing down the corner bar. I'm not really known in the U.S. And I want you to know what it is, you know, don't, don't have any illusions about who I am or what I can offer you. I just know I really want to be with you. And so I appreciated his ruthless honesty, you mm -hmm. know. He was very straightforward. Um, that gave me faith that... You know, maybe we can build something together that's really, that's so real. He was longing for something real. He had lived the rock and roll lifestyle with, with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a long time, even through his marriage, previous marriage. And um, he was tired of it. He was longing for, for something that would just allow him to focus inward and outward and, and have a base and have a... A strong sense of belonging and something real in his life. So, so that was very appealing to me. It wasn't this uh, promises and unicorns and crazy propositions. Right. It was very real. He was real. And I remember thinking, okay, so I can go about my business, my life, and, 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 and play it safe. But what if... I then sit back and turn 70 and wonder what would have happened if I had followed my heart. What if I had followed my heart? And I couldn't bear that thought. You know, I, and I, I thought to myself, okay, this is so uncertain. This is so, such a wild card. I have to leave everything I know. Um, I had my office on the fifth floor of this building. I had my furniture. I had my apartment that I shared with, with some, some, some friends. And 
I had to sort of just say, I'm giving it all up because what if I don't give this a try? That that was unthinkable to me. So it was it was a clear choice. It it was not certain. I didn't know what it included, and it was certainly not an easy choice. But I can imagine. So at what point did you think, okay, that was the right choice? Like how long did it take for you? You know, I'm sure you had fun. It was nice to get to know, and it's always great the beginning of a relationship. But at what point did you think, wow, this this was the right choice? Immediately, that there was never any doubt. Really. In the, that's not to say we didn't fight like cats and dogs. No, but people fight. But you I mean, know. it's it's a big move for you. You're giving up a lot yeah. and taking a risk. Did and, you did you have any um, did you have any idea about the U.S. and actually did you even have thoughts about moving to the states or any dream about going there beforehand? I had been here with my parents in 1980 okay. uh, and traveled around and had a little bit of a love hate relationship. We had been to the Midwest and there had been a lot of um, I had had a lot of discussions with people about various things, um, and I had been very um, taken aback with certain American people, the way they would think about their culture and their country and the way they would pollute and the way they would treat other people uh, that I felt was very difficult for me to understand. Mm -hmm. But I was also fascinated with the immense... You know, driving through South Dakota, it was so open and beautiful, and nature was strong and speaking. And um, I, I met also the most kind, wonderful people. Um, and then I had just been there on a small business trip myself uh, six months before I met Walter, uh, where I had tried to go up and, and take some Danish export items to different companies. I was trying to branch out because the advertising sales was not, I knew that was not where I'm going to make my mark. So right. I was trying to branch out into other things. So I had been there and visited particularly with a beautiful African-American family in Hollywood that had taken me in for a, a few days, friends of friends in Denmark. And they took me to um, a gospel church and and he uh, had me clap along. <laughs> and uh, I was so blown away by their life and music and the, the way music completely molded into their lives, you know, and how it was expressing faith and it was expressing joy and it was expressing grief, just like the blues and just like some of those other kinds of music, but again, with an intensity and mm -hmm. a beauty that I couldn't anticipate. So I know that at one point or another, you looked at Walter's books or his concerns for how things are being managed and, and realized that maybe he wasn't being managed properly and, and took on the role of being his manager. Mm. How long between the point that you moved to the States and that happened? Very quickly, um, I, I started working as his tour manager because I felt the person holding down that job, I, I could do it better. Um, so I told Walter, you know, I don't like just being the girlfriend traveling with right. you, um, but I would like that job, and I think I could do a good job doing that. How accepting was the band on that? Not, not all that happy about it. <laughs> Here comes this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Oh, it was, it, it was. There was some tension, but Walter was a boss, and he said, you know. But he, he took some slack. I mean, he took, yeah, some heat for that. I think from the band, um, and I did the best I could. 
um, but very quickly moved into sort of looking through not just the day-to-day -day stuff of tour management, but actually how Walter was managed. And again, I noticed things that were just not right. It started with a gut feeling, then I would look into it, and things kept not checking out. Um, it took me about a year and a half or so to, from I really got suspicious till I had proof in black and white, and I could put that down in front of Walter. So does this knowledge come from your, your experience in running clubs, working at clubs, and, and doing PR stuff? And where does that come from that you, you think, okay, this isn't right? Because the, the music industry is, it's different. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I think, though, if I really have to boil it down to something, it's probably a nose for bullshit. I mean, I, I can just smell it. Right. And... I think you either have that or you don't. Walter is the most open-hearted, kind person, and he really, really has faith in people and trusts them. He has very an easy time trusting. Mm -hmm. And when I would point out to him, listen, this manager, uh, he had a t team of two managers, one of them, he's not doing right by you. There's something going on. And he would like, what are you talking about? He's my friend. We've been friends since canned heat. Um, you you got to be out of your mind. You're just suspicious, you know. And so it was excruciating to have that knowledge but not be able to prove it. Right. Uh, and I lived with it. It was a constant. It was almost like a stone in my stomach for a long time because I knew the man I love is getting uh, robbed blind, you know, by these people. He would do a 10-week tour and come home with... $1,500, and we would have to pawn his guitar. And uh, we had a car that had filled up with smoke when we drove it and uh, lived in this tiny little apartment, and sometimes we had to, you know, sell the fax machine to get money for rent. I mean, it was, it was, it was really hard. It was not an easy thing to jump into. And for me, it was just excruciating knowing okay, we don't have a bank account, we don't have this, we don't have that. I was used to running my own business. Right. And I came into this, what felt like a hole of, of just all this love, but no matter what I did or suggested, Walter was very um, clear that his loyalty was, for the business was with the people he had signed with and that he was working with. So it was very, very difficult. How did you know how to manage a band? I didn't, and I made every mistake you can make, I think, in, in many ways. But again, I just knew I wanted something uh, good for Walter. I had a good understanding of marketing, and I had a, a good understanding of how business worked. Um, I had a good understanding of sort of the, the building blocks that you can put it together with. Um, and I had worked um, booking bands and doing PR, so I had a little bit of understanding of how the dynamics worked. And then, of course, I'd been with Walter for a couple of years. And I had certainly seen what I would say was things that I wouldn't do. I had learned by watching some of these people and what they'd done. Um, one of the contracts they had Walter sign before I, I came, in, uh, came in with and to be with him was a publishing contract where he signed away all his rights for 20 years to his music wow. and he got an advance that was for uh, you know that for him was a, a great sum of money but it really wasn't 
but he was he was enthralled with you mean you're gonna give me x amount of dollars now for my song cool you know so i knew what wasn't going to be working for to sustain his career i want to put it like that I, i probably had some building blocks and i knew what didn't work so i could sort of knit together what i thought would work and Chief among it was Walter's amazing talent and his knowledge of where he wants to go. Because for me, it's really about Walter can completely direct his own career, his own vision for his music, what he wants to do. That is all him. That is all in him. So you and don't sit down and have like a five-year plan, what goals are in five years from now, what Walter... I do with the record label on marketing now. Yeah. But but for Walter, it's about what's in me has to come out. And so he has that directionality. I just try to really make sure that the, the blanks are filled in and that he gets to go that trajectory in the best way possible. Um, and then build win-win relationships around him. Not these quick scheme, you know, I'm going to just get a great deal for this one show and then, you know, next time I come back, you don't want to look at me. But really building long-term relationships. I have a great, great um, group of people around Walter now that works with us. We've had an agency for almost 20 years now, intrepid artists in, in, in um, Charlotte. You know, we have very honest uh, conversations in Europe. Um, been working with the same people for a long time as well. See, I think oftentimes, and I understand why this happens, but I, th- I think a lot of times when artists have their wives become their managers, sometimes they get a bad rap for that. Mm. And I understand why. But I know that the wives are, like it makes sense, because financially it's easier for them to travel and the wives are always looking out for their husbands and and in the best interest, but sometimes you get the impression that they might not be the greatest business person, um, or you just get the feeling that um, something about their marriage is becoming more of a not a distraction, but people just know that oh yeah, that's his wife. But I know that you know I don't know a lot of people in the industry, but I know a few people, and I know that one one particular person said some very nice things about you. I mean, it was, you know, and it was very complimentary. And I presume it's just the way you, you conduct your business. And that spoke volumes to me and, and, and the way that how you were respected in the industry. Mm. Is that something, like if you had a philosophy on how you manage, what would that be? Win-win. It has to be a win-win. Everybody I work with, there has to be open communication. There has to be a clear... Um, idea of what what it is we're doing together. Um, And so communication is key. You have to be able to put your vision on the table. They have to be able to respond to that and and tell you how they can work within that vision or not. And so communication is key. And then really the long-term strategy for me, finding the right people, and it takes a lot of weaving in and out before you find the right team. And somebody can work great for five, six, seven years, and then you have to move on to a different arrangement too. But it's about not burning bridges. Mm -hmm. It's about doing it with integrity. Um, Because long-term, that is going to be sustaining a career um, much more than quick little... Um, you know, get rich quick schemes or, or what else you can come up with. At least that's, that's my philosophy. 
And how long did it take from, from the moment you decided to take on the role of being the, the business manager for Walter's career to the point where you thought, I, I kind of understand this. Like, I'm, I'm very comfortable in this role. I, you know, I still get that experience. I mean, it keeps growing for right. me. And, and things change. And Yeah, and, and new challenges come up. The record industry, obviously, is, has right. changed, and social media has come in, and um, the label we work with now has a, a whole new group of young people that give a different flavor to the work and how they communicate. Um, so I think it's a matter of really staying current on all of that and also being willing to learn, not, not to just bog down in... This is how we've always done it, and God damn it, that's how we're going to continue to do it, right? But really to say, okay, well, okay, so I see that. It might be working. Can you explain more? I want to know more about it. So it's a, it's a continual process. Um, you know, my, my focus is always on how can I get Walter the best possibilities of reaching people. That is the baseline that everything comes from and so if that means I have to swallow my pride and how I've been doing things might be there might be a better way of doing it well then that's that's what I will do because that's the most important that he gets a chance to reach people because I see him almost as a minister or a shaman or an artist that can do things out there and I think his work is important so that gives me great joy, more than anything, that I can help him reach people. And I can go out there sometimes and see people look up at, at the stage and be transformed and transfixed and have this experience that move them, that matter to them. That gives me such joy. Everything else is secondary. Hmm. So now you're managing him and he's working like crazy. You're also going for your PhD. You're raising three kids. And then after you finish your PhD, you decide to continue the dissertation and make this into a book. And, and one thinks, well, how do you do all that <laughs> and manage all this? Um, how, how do you manage your time like that? At that point, like how do you manage your time when you're working on six different things at once? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, 14, 15 hour days sometimes and, and a lot of getting up early, staying very, very strong. I work out and I exercise and I eat healthy, um, try to practice good mental hygiene, you know, as well. Um, you know, as I, we talked a little bit about before the interview started about people that sit in traffic every day. So mm -hmm. I have friends that sit in traffic for three hours every day. I don't have to do that. Right. I work out of my home office, wherever I am in the world is my home office. And sometimes walking on the beach, I do business calls. Um, and it's a very fluid process. And one thing sometimes will inform the other. The PhD work informs the management work. The management work informs the um, raising of children and how to talk to them. And everything is tied together. Our love life is tied together with our work life, you know. So it's a big uh, expression of who we are as people more than it's work and play separated. Right. It's all tied together. And, and again, it, if I just one comment about that, 
when you have a love life and a work life that's so intimately connected, again, the communication is key. Sometimes I have to say to Walter, hey, listen, that, I didn't appreciate you saying that to me in that way. You know, that was not nice. Can you, can you, you know, I, I understand if I made so, if I did something that irritated you or that wasn't nice, but you, you're going to have to talk to me in a way that's, makes me feel like you appreciate what I do anyway. And, but and is he, the communication different as you as a wife versus you as his manager? <laughs> we used to think that in the beginning. I, we'd have this joke between us that, well, are you talking to me as, as uh, my husband or are you talking to me as my boss? Because if you're talking to me as my husband, fuck off, you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but really, I think over time, it has really become very much, a, again, just integrated into who we are, you know. We'll have a breakfast out on, on the town once in a while, and we'll talk business, we'll talk kids, we'll talk us, we'll talk vacation plans, we'll talk everything. And it's just, it's just one big part of who we are. But there is also times where I'll have to tell them, don't come to me at 10 o'clock at night and tell me I need to write that email tomorrow because I can't get it out of my head. I have just sort of gotten off my work uh, right. thinking, you know. But it's in his head. He's got to get it out. So how do we deal with that? Well, can you write it down and just leave a note for me or something so I don't get back into work mode? So constantly there are, there are things we iron out with, with one another on how to do this. So there's all this connectivity that we talked about before between your career choices when you were younger and how it's kind of all come together and those experiences have kind of clearly defined who you are today. The other thing that happened was why you're writing, writing a book about blues and its healing powers or its, its powerful message. Um, your husband gets very, very sick, which is kind of ironic in, in, in that all of a sudden... <laughs> You know, you need you need that healing power to um, get through this, and and you're you're in the middle of writing a book, and he is, I guess, on his deathbed in some yes. ways, right? Oh, definitely. Um, I can, uh, you know, and, and talking to Walter, I mean, he definitely made it sound like without your strength, it probably wouldn't have happened. And, and for anybody who hasn't seen this amazing video of Walter's return to the Royal Albert Hall. The first gig, it's just unbelievable. Um, but so tell me about that experience of working on this book and all of a sudden your husband is in critical condition. Yeah, actually it was uh, still the PhD research I was okay. doing. So I, I was, it, that had to go on a back burner. Um, of course, I was looking at unknown amount of time where Walter couldn't work, where I couldn't work. So we had no income. We had three kids. You know, um, it was back to the fear factor that we encountered initially of not having any money, uh, not knowing what was going to happen. And there's no fax machines to sell anymore. <laughs> there was, but we were beyond that, you know. Yeah. And, and then with very expensive health insurance, um, that our health insurance at that time was more than our van payment, car payment, house payment, um, other insurances combined. I mean, it was an enormous check every month to just maintain our health insurance. And then there was a deductible and unknown medical expenses with no income for a couple of years. So it was 
incredibly frightening. Um, that that um, stone in my belly that I encountered in the beginning was very much back. And, and living in fear and stress and uncertainty and trying to keep your head cool enough to navigate the health industry maze, um, the medical industry, also with hospitals, speaking to doctors, keeping everything straight for Walter's treatment. And then being a mother, of course the PhD work at that point was my, I had a very understanding, wonderful uh, major advisor who, who was from, uh, he's been a 20 year deal, dean at Yale. Um, and he was a great support for me in helping me strategize my work during this very difficult time and how I could do minimal things and still kind of stay in the running. Um, and then, I, of course, after Walter got well, I doubled down and tripled down on, on the work. Um, but it was, it was such a scary, scary time, and I was pushed to my limits of existence. And I remember thinking that, wow, this is something that I have feared for a long time because we knew Walter had hepatitis C, and we knew he had a ticking time bomb. And here it is. The fears are now real. You're living it. You're living your nightmare that you have feared. And then I thought to myself, well, I can either panic, which is not going to do anybody any good, or I can look at it like, well, what happens if I just treat this as just another experience? Just another moment in life that I need to move through and not get stuck in. You know, we all know that grief happens, sorrow happens, loss happens, illness happens, all these things that we try to consider as yeah, but not me and not now, and, you know, we push away. Eventually they happen to all of us. And so now this is it for me. The, 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 this is it. And so, so I walked through it. That was really the, the, the feeling I had. I just need to put one foot in front of the other, not panic, think in everything I can as clearly as I can. And that was very much about keeping worry at bay just not getting sucked into that spin that happens when you start, that internal voice that keeps saying, what if this, what if that, and what if you do this, and have you thought about that? You're not doing that good enough, and you're not, you're not preparing there, and you're not, every time that voice started, and believe me, it started a lot, I would push it aside and say, okay, I understand this is valid. I can't deal with it. I, I don't have an answer for it. But this part of it, maybe this 10% of that, whatever that voice that was saying something crazy, worrisome, maybe 10% of it I can do something about. So that's what I'll focus on, the 10% that I can affect right now, right here, right now. And, and that was the practice. It almost became a, a mantra. I would walk in the morning and I would dissect the things in my life that I could do something about and the things that I could do nothing about. That was way beyond the scope of any human interference. It was up to higher powers or other people or, you know, chance. So if I understand this correctly, now you're writing your second book about that whole experience, which I do want to ask you about. But I'm just going back to the first book, looking back on it, and it's an amazing, a major accomplishment to write that book and it's a great book that people should check out because it's, a, it's an interesting collection of surveys and, and 
um, findings about blues music today. But do you look at that book in a different way rather than just the study that you spent years and years doing because of that experience that you went through? Of course, yeah. It, it completely informed, actually, my ability to walk through my blues, as, as you want to say, because I, I heard again and again from blues fans how this music helped them tell it like it is and state facts about emotions. Like, how is it I really feel right now? Instead of pushing it away, the blues is about expressing it. Mm-hmm. It's about not necessarily having an answer to it, but it's just stating it matter-of-factly. And, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, psychology, neurology, again and again shows that if we're able to express, just state matter-of-factly what's going on with us, instead of repressing it, we will have more energy will have more presence of mind. There'll be less parts of our brains bogged down with repressing and pushing aside the unpleasantries that we don't want to face. And so matter-of-factly just dealing with what I was going through, which is what the research showed again and again and again, this is one of the strong suits of blues music where it's still very relevant today and still usable as a, as a, a healing force that that's a big part of it. And that encouraged me directly to write about the experience. And that led me to write the blog about Walter. Um, and it, incurred, it made me have the courage also to ask for help in the fundraiser mm-hmm. that we did. Um, what was that experience like, to, to have to kind of open up and, and share this difficult time and then to have the overwhelming support that you received and I don't even know how you how you answer to that because it must be just overwhelming it's one of the pivotal experiences of my life it was life-changing I've always been a very stoic uh, strong-willed person I'm going to handle this I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps I'm going to find a way and I'm not. I'm going to share the happy stuff on Facebook. You know, um, what looks good. Um, so diving into that sense of vulnerability and despair that I felt at that time, and sharing it was the, <clears throat> and asking for help was the scariest thing I have ever done. Um, it was. I felt like I was going to get. You know. Um, that people were going to respond very negatively to that, you know. Um, that was my fear. And so overcoming that fear was very difficult. And, you know, pushing that button, making the fundraiser go live, and then starting to share more about it. But then when people responded so positively and so kindly and so warmly and so generously, uh, I... I don't think I've ever felt that embraced and held by a community before. Um, it, it was, I mean, it, it made me realize what Walter had been putting out there for all those years was real because now it was coming back and I was sort of the bridge link to Walter and it was coming through me back to him. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, that was... 
I think it saved, Wal- I know it saved Walter's life. It made me able to do the financial decisions I needed to make to take him out of state and, you know, set up shop in two different states, have our kids taken care of and do all the things that I needed to do on a very practical level. And on an emotional level and spiritual level, this level of outpouring of support and love and prayers literally sustained me enough that I could sustain him and keep going. It was such a push of goodwill and uh, kindness. And I have to say, no matter what's going on in our world now and how contentious politics can get and how unpleasant sometimes debate can be out there and and you think the world is coming to an end in the way people talk to each other. Well, is there something going on in the States? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just a bit. But that, that experience is my reality check. It reminds me, no, people are kind. It doesn't matter who they vote for. It doesn't matter who, who they believe in. There is an incredible amount of kindness that's still available out there. And I think one of the ways we access that kindness is through being real, is through daring to be vulnerable, is through daring to tell it like it is, like the blues does, is standing in our um, flawed human condition and, and sort of just say, here I am, I don't have all the answers, but I have good intentions in my heart. And people respond to that overwhelmingly. So in going back and writing about that experience, and we know that it's it's turned out very well, but how difficult is it to relive that whole experience in in writing about in, in working on the second book? You know, it's it's interesting because there was so much material from my blog, and I really don't want to regurgitate what right. was in the blog. So I'm writing sort of around that. What did it feel like when that blog post happened? And then you know some of the blog posts will be in there. What's it like to go back there? It's scary as hell. Oh, my gosh. It, it really, there are days where I don't want to do it at all. Um, because it was after Walter got home and he was starting to get better. And I was in a full board writing my Ph.D. He was in rehab. He was pl- starting to play a lot, six, eight hours a day to get his, his music back. But at that point, it was almost like I was starting to believe he is going to live. He is going to make it. And so all the emotions came up in me and all the fear. Um, It was a a, a direct case of PTSD. Um, I was angry. I was uh, afraid. I was locked, almost like on emotional lockdown. And so writing about it, there's no way that I cannot go back into some of all that that mm-hmm. I had been on emotional lockdown about. Even though I had blogged about it, even though I had written about it, there were still many, many things that were just locked away in there. And so writing about it, I'm, I have to sort of go back in there. And, and the miracle of that is that now I understand certain things. And, and for that second book, sometimes it... It activates memories from when I was a child and something happened. I almost died when I was eight years old and I was in the hospital and sort of floated in that interim state between life and death. 
And some of the things that happened to me at that time were reactivated through Walter's process. And so now I can write about it, and it's almost like the one thing leads to the other things, leads to the, the deeper thing from when I was a little girl. And all of it then gets tied in in a new way and gives me a new understanding and um, an insight into the process of life and death, into me, what's important in life. It's a very giving process, but it's not an easy one. I know that you, you, you talked about how it's changed your perspective on things and how appreciative you are of, of the fans out there. Do you manage him in a different way now? I mean, I, you know, we talked about his tour schedule, which if you go to waltertrout.com, you will see that he's working quite a bit. It's pretty crazy how much he's on the road. And I, as, as the wife of somebody th that manages him, you, you know that the business side is one thing, but there's also the, the wife who cares about you know, your husband and him being on the road that much. Is, is, that a, is there a conflict or like how does that play Well, Walter is the most alive when he plays for people. Right. And I don't think he's ever happier than when he has a good tour together. Now we have our oldest son tour manage Walter in the States. Oh, okay. And he also plays in the band here and there. Um, so there's that family connection for Walter even on the road now. Plus his band, he loves, you know, those guys. So it's his other family, his other... And then there's all the, the people he encounters, the fans, the friends, the people that he knows. He remembers people's names. He's surrounded with love out there he puts it out he receives it it, it really is a very life-affirming process for him so yes I worry about physically can he can he push through such long drives and so many nights on end on stage but I also know how it generates him and I saw it when he was ill we he I kept sending him out because I knew if he had to just sit on the sofa and watch tv he would just wither. Mm -hmm. So as long as he could keep touring, that would sustain him. That would keep whatever life force he had in him stronger. So, so I know that about him. So yes, I have, it's always in the back of my mind. And I don't tour Walter. I don't manage Walter. I work with Walter. We, we work everything out. So I, I talk with him, do you want to do these shows here? Do you want to do this block here? How about we try this, how try that? And he's like, you know, I don't think I want to do that date um, because we've had two days with long drives. I think I need that date off. So we work everything out together like that. And I, I will do it with his input. Sometimes it's a matter of maybe having a, a, a you know, let's, let's just take a map, let's take... Let's work this through in a, in a way where we really, both of us know what's in, included. So I don't just tell him, okay, go play these shows. You know, he's, he's always a part of the process and leads the way many times, certainly creatively, with whatever album project he comes up with. That's always his idea. And I then sell it to the label or the label then gives us input and I help modify. And as I said, we do make long-range plans with the label um, for things. But we had done that when Walter got ill and all the plans had to be scrapped and changed. Things happen. So, you know, you just... It's a very continual, continually evolving process with a lot of input from a lot of different people, mainly Walter. 
my final question, and thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoy talking to you, and, and I appreciate you taking out a, your busy schedule to do this. But my final question is, you know, we talk about plans and, and understanding that Walter is a big part of your life, but I know you're working on a book. What If you had a goal, like what is, are your plans for the future? Is there things that you're working towards that would be interesting to know? Um, I'm going to be uh, moderating two panels, one at the Big Blues Bender on women in blues, okay. where we're going to look at um, not, you know, the, the thing about women has a, have a harder time maybe getting acknowledged or, you know, all the things that are the negatives, but the power of women in blues. What is it women have? What is it they can give? What is it they uniquely um, pr bring to the blues world? So a panel focused on that in January at the um, International Blues Challenge. I'm moderating a panel um, that's going to be about abuse, addiction, and blues, and how blues can can be one of the the healing powers in our lives if we know how and if we let it. Um, those two things I'm very excited about, and it's almost bringing words to some of the things that I've certainly have written about, but also that. Walter expresses a lot and, and bringing community in and talking about some of these things. I'm also working on a project in Denmark with a friend of mine about women in leadership, um, taking the focus on how women express themselves in a sometimes male-dominated world and how, how does it look when we express leadership from a, 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 a woman's perspective instead of just a assuming that authority and certain top-down priorities are what works always best. So that's another project I'm very um, excited about. You know, for me, it's all about how can we all get a little bit more aware in all we do, whether it's music, leadership, uh, management, uh, just regular human interaction whether it's traversing illness or life or death, how can we just be a little bit kinder to each other and a little bit more aware of all the little things that play in to making relations and making life and making um, this world go round? I know we can find out. Uh, no one can order your book through marietrout.com. Can they find out about these other projects you're working on uh, for, through that website? Yes, okay. uh, marietrout.com, it'll be updated. And we're also working on a brand new website for Walter. It's going to go live on June 28th when we announce the new album that he's also working on. Which is probably bef before this will be broadcast, I think. So. Okay, so, so waltertrout.com as well, a brand new web store that we have just started. Um, so and it's on the book is on Amazon.com as well. Thank you very much. Thank this you. It's a so real much. treat. I really appreciate this. Oh, it was fun. Thank you. Thank you.